Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. we have come to an agreement in principle. We still have a lot of work to do, but I believe this is an agreement in principle that's worthy of the American people. Well, I feel very good about it. I've spoken to a number of the members. I spoke to McConnell. I spoke to uh, a whole bunch of people. And it feels good. We'll see when the vote starts. And look, one of the things that I hear some of you guys saying is, why doesn't Biden say what a good deal it is? Why would Biden be saying what a good deal is before the vote? You think that's going to help me get a pass? No. That's why you guys don't bargain very well. Anyway. Well, that is President Biden, who clearly understands something about Republican primaries, followed by Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And the deal, the mega deal is done, but are the votes there? What are the politics? What's going to happen? Plus presidential updates. We have all kinds of stuff to chew over here. I am joined by the one and only, the estimable Baron Robert Von Gibbs here. Robert, how are you? And let's introduce our incredibly qualified to talk about this goat rodeo of the debt ceiling. Uh, you why don't you bring him in and good to see you too <laughs> good to see you and um please somebody get joe biden out of the airplane engine that uh, he was standing in i don't know why it is that presidents tend to give uh, important statements either standing next to large airplane engines or helicopters but it's a vexing thing that we've dealt with for decades crack advanced staff best money can buy right there <laughs> yeah uh let's introduce the one and only the creator of the circus yay mark mckinnon Mark and his hat are back for a robust discussion. Mark, good to see you. Private first class Akaru or Gordy Perdue. Good to see you, pal. Thanks, guys. Well, they did it. They they did it. Let's give them credit. They got a deal, but now they got to really get a deal through the uh, the herd of cats known as the Congress. Mark, what, what's your, what's your take on the whole thing? What what do you, how do you think it'll roll out? And we probably ought to do a little how a bill becomes a law thing too here. Well, it's such incredible kabuki as it always is, uh, and they always have to wait till the last beat of the last act for anything to happen. Uh, and it's it, it's actually happening. Uh, I think it's kind of exceeding our expectations, but it also feels like it could fall off the cliff, you know, in minutes. Uh, given the constituency of the Republican Party and the cats that Kevin McCarthy's dealing with. But at the same time, nobody, none of the cats have, uh, have raised the, uh, at least publicly, the, the notion of the, the motion, the, the, the evil motion to vacate, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. which is what they'd be screaming if they really had a problem. And, you know, I, I got to say, because sort of on both, I mean, Biden is exceeding expectations once again. But McCarthy's exceeding exceeding yep. expectations by a lot in terms of his whole speakership so far. You know, it, under the old prism, like if you know the way we used to do all this stuff, McCarthy's had a pretty good win here. He's been able to push the president into, by normal, non-crazy Republican standards, a pretty reasonable deal to put the brakes on some spending. You know, you know, on, on, under the old prism, and 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 Biden went there because he decided he wasn't going to play chicken with the U.S. economy, and I give him credit for that. It, it's kind of an ungrown up thing to hold up the debt ceiling. Don't love it. Not even sure why we have debt ceiling votes, but Biden recognized the situation, took a little heat from his left, and got the thing done. So I think I think they both get a, a win. But but Gibbs, can you be our civics professor here and kind of explain rules house? Senate, kind of what what the path is like now that they've, they've got the deal, and then we're getting to the politics of it all. Yeah, because I do think it's a great point, because I think there's a bit of a tricky path coming here, right? So yeah. the first thing, that this has to go, obviously, through the House. The Senate can't consider it until they get the bill from the House. Uh, let's put a pin in that for one second, because that could take a while. Um, 
We know the X date is now June 5th, so we know the date by which this has to be done. The first hurdle that you mentioned, um, Murphy, is, 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 is maybe the most important House committee, uh, but it's one you don't hear a lot about unless there's some challenge, and that is the Rules Committee. And the mm-hmm. Rules Committee basically sets the rule for how legislation will be debated, what will be debated, who will debate it, will there be amendments, what is in order, what's not in order. The interesting thing about this, so you have to pass on almost every bill, uh, particularly one that only takes a majority to pass, you've got to pass the rule. So this is hurdle number one. In order for McCarthy to become speaker as part of that 15 voterama that we had earlier this year, he agreed to add three very conservative members to the rules committee. The rules committee is made up of not seniority. This is people picked by the speaker, people picked by the minority leader. They stack the committee. It's very partisan. Yeah. I mean, it's totally the traffic cop. It's the only thing in Congress, like the Politburo where yeah. the ruling party, you know, yes, the, the minority party, no on every vote, but the on ruling party wins on everything. It, it is. Yeah. And it's all yeah. politics. It's the traffic cop to get the bill to the house floor. What's interesting is the three people that got added make this a nine to four majority for Republicans. And to your point, Democrats are going to vote against this regardless. Republicans will vote for this. Usually. Usually. Maybe not now. The caveat here is that they have two particularly conservative members that have already come out and said they criti- and criticized the bill. Let's assume they don't vote for the rule. That leaves Tom Massey, a Republican who was also added on to this uh, and supported McCarthy. So the challenge here is that essentially if all three of those members vote against and the four Democrats vote against, the rule doesn't pass. The whole thing goes up a bit in uh, early flames. So I think the big thing to watch in this first step is Tom Massey, who supported McCarthy on all these votes. The other two people didn't support McCarthy until the end. So the, the first real hurdle in this is, can you get this by the Rules Committee, in which the, you know the Republicans usually have this grease? Then it goes to the full House. I, I think you know we'll get into the politics of this, because I think in reality... This is going to be less about the policy of and much more about the politics of what this vote symbolizes for every person that has to take it. And the Rules Committee drama starts right now while we're recording this. Uh, my theory is, and Mark, I want to hear what you think, the asbestos underwear here is the four Democrats. And my guess is back channel, they've said, look, if two of your Freedom Caucus yeah. guys bounce, we're going to cover it the other way. Though McCarthy has allegedly promised the Freedom Caucus if he can't get unanimous Republican rule votes, it won't go, but that's the end of the world. So uh, I, I think it's going to get through with a, a Democratic vote or two. But what do you think? I think that's the insurance policy. I think, abs- I mean, why wouldn't they? It, it, they they need for this to pass more for Biden than than it than for yeah. McCarthy. So why why would yeah? And I wonder too if somebody might not show up at the meeting and therefore reduce the number of no votes. Uh, you could do something like that as well. I don't know. Assuming you still had a quorum of people, but I agree. I mean, look this this is what makes this deal so interesting. Is it isn't this now? You know, two sides had to come to agreement. Now two sides have to get two hundred and eighteen votes. They have to cobble together how you get a majority. And, and you know, the reason we don't have, I think, a motion to vacate is if you're a lot of these really conservative voters, uh, members of Congress who've never voted for a debt limit, and you're not going to actually vote for this debt limit either, motion to vacate means you own this problem now. And th- this is, th- I think this is a bit of an easy vote for, if you're, if you've never voted for a debt limit, you say, gosh, we had this much better bill. I just can't in good conscience take this. But I don't want the full responsibility of the debt going down. I'm happy to. They want the issue, not the economic collapse. Right. I, I'm <laughs> yeah. happy to vote no. I'm happy for enough people to make up for it. I'm happy to, like, wag my finger uh, and and yet not exactly own or either own the issue and or own the ramifications. Yeah, and the thing, the bottom line is Republicans can go out there and say, this is a win for us. Biden said at the very beginning he wasn't going to negotiate. It was going right. to be a debt ceiling bill under no circumstance that we didn't negotiate. And he did. He did negotiate. Yeah, yeah no, they- I totally agree with that. That's the old school way it ought to all fit together. The problem is, you know, we got a big chunk of the House Republican Conference that sees everything in apocalyptic terms. So, you know, they won't. They, they, they won't take a traditional win, though I still think, look, I, I think this thing is ultimately pretty simple. Unless rules melts down and he gets it to the floor, 
I think you're going to have half to over, well, the, under the conference rules, you need a majority of the Republican conference. I think he'll get there because the speaker can squeeze a lot of arms and every economic interest in America, every Yoho Republican congressman or Democratic lefty who's got any kind of plant in their district is getting a call from the CEO that when we lay off 7,000 people, if this collapses, I'm blaming you, son. And so I, I think it, with enough Democrat votes, which is going to be the key, they're going to be able to get it done in the House. But there will be perils of Pauline. You know, that's what this week is going to be. And that's not great for world markets. Good day for China. But uh, I, I think they will grind it out, is my guess. Two points on your thoughts, Murphy. I, I, one, I'm not entirely sure that the Republican caucus is swayed anymore by the CEO from their district calling about the 7,000 unemployment, uh, uh, newly unemployed people. I think. Uh, they just hear the teacher from Charlie Brown when those kind of calls come in. <laughs> Secondly, well, not the majority, but I get your point on a significant number of. Them. I don't know. I don't. I don't. We'll see. I'll be interested. You know, McCarthy keeps saying that ninety-five percent of the caucus supports this, and uh, if you believe that, I've got oceanfront property in Kansas with your name on it. Um, the second point, you know, I, I think this is why this is really hard because McCarthy cuts this deal, which cuts spending. Uh, you know, the whole irrationality of the fact that we are uh, even negotiating this or or kind of asking about how we're going to pay our debts after it is we decide we're going to spend a bunch of money um, and then assuming that Democrats are going to come to Republican rescue on this. I, I think the vote will be fascinating to watch. I would not be surprised if a bunch of Democrats vote no. Um, it maybe I think this bill gets 218. I do not think this bill gets a huge number because I think there are a lot of Democrats that are going to register their protest at the process of having to vote for an agreement that that at least in the house on the house side they weren't really a party to. Obviously, the president is uh, is the one who negotiated this, and I think in reality Democrats would be well served to get past this. I just think it's going to be a lot of sting to get there. Um, but if you're a, a rank and file Dem member, Gibbs, if your lifelong dream of serving in the Congress came true and the voters sensibly elected you and you <laughs> lean progressive, but you're, you're not there with the squad and you're thinking, I don't like this bill. I wasn't part of it. I don't like the cuts. Let the Republicans who forced this, let them pass it. All, all the argument you're making, which I think is a good argument. And then the phone rings. and It's the White House political director or chief of staff saying, look. If we can't deliver a comfortable majority, we have just beheaded your president of the United States of our party. The president needs this. Whose side are you on? That is an effective whip mechanism for, I think, a lot of the Dems. Absolutely, because in reality, th this is – forget about – and I'm, I'm going to sound crass, so email Murphy. But I'm going to – forget <laughs> I'm shocked. about – forget all of the data points about what is and what isn't in this agreement. What – what Biden is getting out of this is not having chaos and him not having chaos, which would splatter back on him in just as big a way as it would House Republicans, is a really big deal politically for him. That shouldn't be. And I, so I agree. A lot of those calls will be made. I just wonder. It'll be interesting to see what the reaction is on the other side. I think that, to me, watching how many votes over 218 this gets, I think will be fascinating. No, and I suspect not a lot because people are going to just sit and watch. And if they have to vote, they will. But if they won't, they yeah. They yep. When in doubt, hide the congressional motto. Well, let me play a little tape from the uh, Looney Tunes caucus here. And, and this is a great illustration of the horseshoe theory of politics, where if you get left or right enough and then you sneeze, you flip over the gap and you become the other side. So here are a few voices from the in my view, loony left and the loony right reacting to the deal. And the question is, will this bonfire catch on in the House? Donald Trump presided over the third largest deficit increase in the debt ever because they spent two, almost $2 trillion on tax cuts for the wealthiest billionaires. And now they want poor and working people Generally to pay that expired. bill. Stop it. Pass a clean debt ceiling right now. Yeah, I mean, well, they should have thought about that before 104 days went by where Joe Biden didn't do anything at all. And before a deal was cut going into Memorial Day weekend without all of us around the table deciding whether this was in the best interest of the United States of America. Just because the swamp is flawed doesn't mean the average hardworking American should take it on the chin. Yeah, wait, wait till we have the oil drums with the fire in it, Chip. That was Chip Roy. 
Fire Breather from the Freedom Caucus. And before that, I'm going to mispronounce her name, but you probably know it, Gibbs, the chairwoman of the House Progressive Caucus. And they're together on this. No surprise. Yeah, though, I think they, I mean, obviously they're coming at it from very different viewpoints. I mean, uh, the... The Democrats on this, in this case, are pointing out rightly that we raised the debt ceiling not once, not twice, but three times under Donald Trump. We added 35 percent to the, or something like that, to the national debt. We nobody blinked, nobody blinked twice, uh, and everybody said yes. There wasn't a negotiation about whether we were going to cut spending. Uh, and so I think they're coming at this from very different viewpoints because I think for Democrats, you know, they're wondering why. <laughs> Why they? Why they're? Why does everybody get religion on the debt and the deficit on the Republican side when there's a Democratic president trying to pay for Republican spending? But but no, I get th- that. That's the argument. But what a weird moment in time to decide to condemn hypocrisy in Congress. I mean, there's a lot of that to go around. I I take the argument. To be fair, they've been they've been condemning this for months. I mean, this is this is. I mean, this was this was noble and foreseeable. I mean, this is. It just doesn't make it any less, you know, full of hypocrisy. Right, right. I, I'll accept that. But I, I don't normally defend the Freedom Caucus, but their argument is we have a legit spending crisis going on and the Democrats want to pour fire on it, which it, which is not a phony argument. If you take a look at the debt to GDP ratio, it is scary bad. It is a phony argument because did we did, where, where did, did we go through some level of, of the, the, the debt negotiations as it related to the Trump tax cuts? No, no, no. I get all that. But the point is, right now we have a debt problem. So having a, a mud fight no, no, about no, no, how no. much to blame. We have a debt blame... ceiling problem. We have a debt well, ceiling well, yeah, problem. Yeah, but the country has a debt problem. They're, they're two different things. So that is what is their argument for the, the, the tactics of the gun against the head. Now, I don't like that tactic, but I get the motive. I don't want you to condemn the hypocrisy and then align yourself with it. I mean, if we're going to have a debt and deficit and budget problem, then let's deal with them holistically. But every, I mean, you know, I yeah, hate but, to call but it who out. in the Democratic Party is for dealing with overspending holistically? I'm for it. I agree. Regular order. But I just Great, let's I have think regular order. But like, phony. but again, how, how do you do two trillion or three trillion dollars in tax cuts and then kind of shrug your shoulders and say, my God, what we really need to do is change the work requirements for a 50 year old on SNAP? I mean, does that seem, do we, do we, I'm for that. I'm actually for that. McKinnon, save us, save us here. Guys, you're going down the rabbit hole. All right, go ahead. Gibbs is going back to the DNC. I can tell. I just want to make sure Murphy understands that it's more likely that we're going to solve that debt problem. He's so worried about dealing with massive unpaid for tax cuts. than we are picking out 51 year olds on snap. Who aren't? Who we should work jobs. for their benefits if they're able-bodied. But anyway, Great, Mark. but we just cut twelve dollars from the debt. Listen, it's a it's a political. Listen, if we were going to talk about hypocrisy and accountability, that uh, we, this would be a days long show. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we didn't tell you this was going to be a days long show, McKenna. But there's, I mean, I think when you think about the politics of this, this is working out pretty well for Biden, just in the sense that Republicans had to do something. They couldn't just say, "Okay, great, fine, clean bill." Yeah, we came here because we'd really, you know. We love spending. Well, it's we said, yeah, we love spending. Go ahead. Uh, they but do. The metaphor is useful, which I mean, the, the metaphor is that everybody raises, which is actually pretty applicable, which is, you know, you have your own finances, your own checkbook, and you 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 have a bunch of things that you lay out for your spending for the year, and you have to pay for them uh, when you get the bill. On the other hand, I think if you have a situation where your bank says, well, you know, you can negotiate a different interest rate on your on your home loan, you'd say, great. You know, and so why wouldn't you go ahead and push for whatever reduction you can get on the money that you owe and you did already spend? If you could do that, you would. Yeah. So what about the Senate? Let's move the politics on. Rand Paul's squawking about it. Some of the lefties, I'm sure Elizabeth Warren's got a stem winder we're going to hear any minute. But fundamentally, if it does go through the houses, I think it will on a bipartisan basis. What uh, what speed bumps do we think in the Senate or is that just optics? They could slow it down procedurally. Yeah, and my guess is what they will do is you'll have the Mike Lees of the world. You've got Lindsey Graham even squawking about he wants to spend more. I don't, I don't know how that fits in with your— Well, uh, his argument is defense spending. You know, the world's on I fire. Know. We need more stuff. <laughs> Let's exempt that. Look, I think you could have objections. I think the challenge for the Senate 
anybody trying to stop or slow this down in the Senate is we're going to be a closer to that June 5th X date. And you'll have some momentum coming out of the house, even if it's just a small majority. I think in reality, Mitch McConnell has stood on the sidelines and, and, and I don't mean that pejoratively, he's bolstered McCarthy saying, you look, you go cut the deal. I think if this gets through that side again, I think you'll have I, I, I Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, all these people are going to go down. Um, you saw this even for Ron DeSantis. We have a bankruptcy. You know, we're, we're headed to a bankruptcy. We're still headed to a bankruptcy. I, I think they'll squawk and scream and vote no. Um, but in the end, they don't want to hold this up because they don't want to own this. Yeah, and I think McConnell sent the signal, which is the important one. Uh, by, by the way, just as a as a footnote, it's just astonishing to me that we've gotten to a point in this country where even Democrats are kind of a, pretty much across the board on defense spending. When if you really yeah. dig down on our defense spending, it, the only country that's even close, and when I say close, not even half of our China spends about half of what we spend on defense spending, and then when you go to the next country. We're like 10x any other country in the world of what we spend on defense. I mean, it's just insane. Well, the other yeah. thing is we're terrible at spending it. You know, defense procurement. I was a civilian consultant at the Pentagon, and I was blown away by the quality of people I met there. I mean, if but, you really want to do something about the budget, that's where you do it. Yeah. And, and look, there are some policies inside of this that are going to be tricky. And again, this is where it's tough for folks, some folks on the left to swallow, which is we're decoupling defense and non-defense discretionary spending right they, they've they've normally right. they've normally gone together in a sense that that they're they aren't decoupled in a way that they're clearly being decoupled in this piece of legislation i think for democrats the challenge in this if you're at a congressional level is that you're setting a series of precedents if you vote for this when you vote for this because i agree they a lot of them will you're setting a series of precedents that the next time, God forbid, we get a Republican president and we forget all about wanting to do anything around the debt and the deficit, that there's not going to be an equal playing field uh, in in how we discuss that. I think if you if I had one criticism of the Biden administration, because again, I think it is it behooves them to get this to get this behind them to not have the chaos of this. But I wonder if in February, instead of saying we're not going to we're not going to discuss this, we're we're hoping to get a clean debt ceiling, which I think was always very very tiny if they had set this up as okay you want to be serious about this let's get serious about this let's put revenue on the table let's close some tax loopholes let's make this a bigger thing i wonder maybe it's a fool's errand and we wouldn't have gotten anything different than what we're getting now but it would have been an interesting play and probably would have gotten uh, Democrats behind it. Maybe, maybe it would have been too hard to get done. Yeah, it's it's an interesting strategy because it put them on an offense for kind of good government and the way it ought to be. On the other hand, the problem we've got is these late, rickety, horrible banana republic deals happen, so it works. The incentives are to just do the perils of Pauline, and as Mark said earlier, the Republicans, yeah. if they knew how to how to take a double and get some applause for it, have done pretty well here. Biden, I think, made the mistake of saying, my way or the highway. And the Republicans said, well, we do run a third of the government. People elected us to the House. So, no, you can't spend all the money. And they won. But now they're going to overplay their hand optically. And my guess is at the end of this, what could be a win for them will be squabbling D.C. idiots. So I think the right will be delighted. They won't have an economic collapse. And they will be able to go out and say, you know, we could have done better, but for the damn Republican establishment and, and the, we we're hear all that music. But net, net, I think it'll be a big, ugly wash, but it'll teach them they can always do it this way. Yeah. The only upside of the failure would be they it might knock them back to regular order, but the price is too high for that. Yeah, and I think the, the, the real mistake may have been not doing something much bigger in terms of just changing the whole uh, how we address the debt ceiling uh, a year or two ago when had, the Democrats had control of all the uh, – all. Yeah. Get rid of yeah. it. There's a pretty good policy argument. Why do you have it? Yeah, totally. I think the challenge was that uh, I don't think that Joe Manchin and uh, and Senator Sinema would have gone along with it uh, for for their reasons. Uh, but I agree. If they had dealt with this last year, or even I, I it, it was it was fantasy to think they were going to do this in the lame duck session. Um, and to your point, Murphy, if the president comes out and makes a bigger play for in February for a bigger thing and revenue and all that kind of stuff. It's, just, it's very likely that we'd still be back here 
with a very, very narrow solution in the sense that we keep, you know, this is a perennial issue where the can just keeps getting kicked down the road. Yep. I totally agree, but that is the nature of the herd of cats on Capitol Hill in the modern era. Why don't we close this segment out by going to the ultimate authorities, the great political scientist and economist, Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, who summed it all up pretty well. All right, I'll compromise. We'll both go down. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Moving on, presidential politics. Then we got a big, big ruckus in Texas to talk about. So riddle me this, fellas. I'm like a crank on Twitter, at Murphy Mike, where I'm always saying, you know what? Wait till there's a caucus before these national polls. I can't turn on cable TV, any network, and get the latest, you know, bag of donuts poll that says, oh, Trump up two, DeSantis down one, and then, a, you know, three pundits wearing 12 pundits worth of hairspray explaining to me how important today is. My my theory from experience in this is that it's much more logarithmatic. Happens late. Milt Gortzman had his great rule, the old uh, Kennedy McGovern aide. Don't trust any national primary poll till after the first contest. But a great illustration is three days ago I read, or four days in the New York Times, DeSantis stumbling, DeSantis a disaster, Trump now the nominee essentially. Because they see it as a binary race. If DeSantis is doing well, Trump's in trouble. Vice versa, if DeSantis is in trouble, Trump's going to win. They kind of ignore the big dynamic of Trump or not Trump. Uh, now there's a big story in the Post. DeSantis on fire in Iowa, doing great. 52 state legislatures and legislators endorsed him. You know, look out, Trump, which I think is fundamentally accurate. I think Trump, and I wrote about this in the Bulwark, is in some trouble in Iowa. But what... What's the real story of the Republican race? Do the other candidates not count? We're going to have the governor of North Dakota, a software billionaire who's an interesting person, is going to jump in around June 6th, 7th, 8th. Uh, neighboring farm state. Guy might do some business. And Chris Christie. And right, yes. Chris Christie. You're going to have a couple hundred pounds of terror and teeth coming in aimed at Trump. Pop me the popcorn. Yeah, Ooh. just you know, forgetting our old argument for a minute, Gibbs, about I think Trump is going to go down. You think the party loves him. He's on, you know going to win uh, the nomination. Uh, but just backing up a little, is the race over or is this like most places where there's actually going to be a contest? There are opportunities and more interesting people get in every week. Uh, Tim Scott's up with six million bucks for TV in Iowa with a great story. And an Oracle gajillionaire behind him. He's not running out of money anytime soon. Right. Right. And DeSantis has a fire hose full of dough. So they're going to ante in. And this guy from North Dakota is a billionaire. He can easily write $10 million, light up Iowa, and see if they buy. I think the short answer is, is I look at, at all three of us. We're, we're, we, we both, all three of us have, have spent time uh, in interesting presidential races that were absolutely impacted not by anything that happened in a national poll, but, but what happens week to week when you start having caucuses and primaries. I, 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 am, I am amazed at how many easy polls of 500 random people in America you can get of a, of a Republican primary sample where we declare the end of the race based on yeah. a polling mechanism that is not employed in any manner in which we pick a Republican or a Democratic nominee let alone a president. Can I give you a great example of that, by the yeah. way? Well, first of all, I, I agree 100% with uh, your your Milk Getzman rule about Iowa <laughs> and how we obsess over everything. Uh, and then Iowa completely, you know, 52 card pickup. And so the, the answer to the question is, you know, the race will be in play until any particular one of these candidates that we're discussing and others have a dollar to spend. I mean, they're going to stay in. Uh, as long as they got enough fuel to put in the car, and 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 a bunch of them do, 
I mean, Tim Scott's a great example. He just moved over $22 million from the Senate account. He's a very good candidate for Iowa. Uh, evangelicals like him. He's got a great story. He's got a kind of his own lane. So there's there's lots of rationales and for these people to stay in the race. But just just to, uh, the best example that I can think of, at least my own personal experience, is when we're in uh, 2000, I was working for the 100-pound the gorilla of George W. Bush coming out of Iowa, the big win. We were going to crush John McCain and his guru, Mike Murphy, in New Hampshire. <laughs> I mean, we went into the ring like Muhammad Ali, and they came in like Joe Frazier, put us on the canvas. We were up double digits going into New Hampshire and lost by 19 points. So, and, and then we were up, we had been up in South Carolina by double digits, and in 24 hours later, we were down by double digits. It was a swing of 30 points. So that's, that's how quickly things can move. And so forget the national polls. Yeah, totally. And, and then we woke up to find the world's largest steamroller heading right toward us in a bunch of other other states. But it was fun to be the Viet Cong for a while and jump from the trees and shoot you guys from behind. Uh, but then, you know, the but but your point is right. I remember Lamar Alexander, 95, the classic dark horse. Love Lamar. I worked on that campaign. We spent the whole campaign below the margin of error till we started going in Iowa and New Hampshire late. And because Lamar had enough people who thought a lot of them and in Tennessee and other places that we put enough money together to have a two-state feasible campaign. And so it we we come very close to Dole. We are kind of the Dole insurance. You know, it was Dole, Buchanan, and us, really, after we murdered Wilson and Forbes in Iowa. And so Lamar shows me this poll. We're now tied for first in Illinois. And he's like, I... I've only been to Illinois twice this year for fundraisers at the airport. You know, I haven't met a single voter. Didn't hear me. What the hell's I go? That is the nature of, of of the process. So my whole theory of the thing, and we're, we're put aside debating will it happen or not, but I think there's a fighting chance that Trump will lose Iowa and lose New Hampshire, and then we will have a reshuffled race, and then the pundits will be, oh, these national polls are amazing. What happened? Well, I'd like to play back tape of a year of see Trump can't be beat. So anyway, it's just more volatile than people think. And I, I just amazed that that lesson is never learned out there in the expert world. It is stunning that it isn't learned. I, I remember, I won't use names, but even as late as October of 2007, Axe and I are going to have uh, dinner with a, a, a would-be important reporter. You know, before the appetizers come, we've got our talking points, we're ready to go. And, and immediately we're interrupted, like just, you know, 45 seconds into our pitch, guys, guys, it's going to be Hillary and Rudy. Let's just enjoy dinner. And, you know, it, yeah, it, yeah. it ended up being... We've all had that dinner with the elite media. Totally. It obviously didn't end up being either one of those. And, you know, the states reshaped this. To McKinnon's point, the fluctuation that happens as a result of one of those wins, because a great majority of people are paying only marginal attention to it as Republican or Democratic primary voters who get illuminated. If you have any doubt of that, Joe Biden was near dead, near dead when he got to South Carolina. And quite frankly, he if he didn't win South Carolina, he, he would, would have be, been dead. Yeah, he should he have been, been dead, dead under the old rules. Yeah. But I will tell you, and I, I think I, if I'm not mistaken, I was on, I think, Meet the Press the morning after South Carolina. And there had been a spat of polls that came out essentially overnight um, that showed amazing and remarkable movement uh, just because Joe Biden, who had literally lost three races and three races badly, uh, but showed up in a place in South Carolina, won it big, and everybody all of a sudden said, he's the only one that can win this, and everybody got in line remarkably quick. So I think this is it drives me crazy much as it does both of you when you you know there's this random again sampled national sample of of uh of republican voters that is somehow going to be determinative well they don't know it's just name id you know i my joke is i'm going to take a bowl i'm going to fill it with flour sugar i'm going to throw an egg and a stick of butter in there and an apple and i want you to taste my prize winning apple pie you know, they have, they have no real idea who most of these candidates are, and they shouldn't. Well, the other thing they should do is just eliminate national polls and just run Iowa polls from now until Iowa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Iowa and New Hampshire, too. I mean, they kind of are cross-infected. By the way, I have an observation and a question about Iowa. One observation is, man, to be to be an undecided or any primary Republican voter, that, talk about a side hustle. 
Yeah, no yes. kidding. Well, it is the yes. music man. You know, all the slicksters from D.C. come in and get rolled by the locals. I read an article today about some guy up there, and I think I've seen him now that I think about it. He rides around in a tractor, and he's kind of a famous Republican. Yeah, the patriotic tractor guy. Yeah, he's got this tractor with the flag. He said he's literally bidding out his vote to DeSantis or Trump, and he's just and he said, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of retired, and we need the money, so we're just going to hold it up. Saying the quiet part out loud. Oh, yeah. The, the New Hampshireites have been in on that game forever. The old joke yeah. is you're you're a campaign advance kid starving. The car breaks down in Iowa. It's like, well, that'll be five bucks and we brought you some pie. You want to stay for dinner? You know, in New Hampshire, Pepperidge Farm, that'll be 150. I'll get it next week. Yeah. You know, they're they're totally into grinding up. the. But but the Iowans are smart. I, I've worked there a lot. Well, let me ask you one other quick thing about that. Well, and that's the, the Jeff Rowe factor and not just the Jeff Rowe factor, but the the strategy, which is the super PAC spending a gazillion dollars on, it's kind of the the Ted Cruz model of, you know, Camp Cruz, and yeah, now it's going to yeah. be Fort Benning. Right. Just reflect on what they're doing. Well, you know, I went to that movie with the Jeb Super PAC, and we did it too. You can hire <laughs> paid canvassers. You can go door to door with a iPad and register a lot of voter info. There are things you can do, but it's really hard. Because when you run a super PAC, you can run media, and you can move people's numbers around. Ask Marco Rubio. We gave him a wood shampoo, so to speak. But and and you know we moved some Jeb Fabrils. We also spent more money pounding on Trump than anybody because all the other campaigns were. Why don't you take all your money and kill Trump for us? Thank you. I uh, didn't know I was working for you guys, but we did it anyway because Trump w was when he started to surge. But it is very hard. In in you're in the small group business in the Iowa caucus. You're pulling people off the voter list. You're putting 60 of them in a high school gym or you're going to groups and you want the candidate there. You want to capture a lot of data. You can't manage any of that with super PAC. So it is a valuable assist, but it is, it is not the core thing. The debates, the candidate, the candidate um, uh, appearances, those those are the core things. But l let me retaliate with a question of my own because I've mentioned this, but I just want to shine a spotlight on it because some of our listeners may not have heard it last time. There are 172,600 Democrats and independents who went out on a cold night in the last Iowa caucus to vote for somebody. And culturally there, it is a big deal. You know, Iowa speaks. We're, we're the middle of the country. We don't get a lot of fancy attention. We speak. There's no Iowa caucus. What are they going to do? You know, the Republican Party, traditionally, you show up at the door, register as Republican, you walk in and vote. Or you can change your registration online very easily at the Iowa Secretary of State. I think it's ridiculous to assume that there's not civic-minded people there who are going to show up in the Republican caucus. Now, I don't know if it's 10,000 or 50,000, but you got 176,000 people who have snowshoes and ability to do this who have nothing to do. And I think it is, you know, going to be a factor we've never seen before. Interesting. That Interesting. people are missing. And it's not great for Donald Trump. You're going to have a thousand drunk college Democrats who are there for Trump. Woo! You know, thinking they're wiring the whole election. But I was stopped on the street. I was there a month ago. And uh, a Democrat recognized me and said, yeah, I'm going to be a Republican for today. I'm going to vote in the caucus. I don't love any of these guys, but Trump's a danger to the country. we got to stop him. So now will it be DeSantis or Scott? I don't know. We need a campaign. But I, I think all this RIP DeSantis, as bad as the horrible Twitter thing was, all the optical mistakes they've made. Again, I think if we had Jeff Rowe here in the electric chair, he'd say, hey, I can't control any of that. That's the campaign. You know, I'm, I'm working on the brochure for my door-to-door -door army to hand out in Black Hawk County. But that's the limitation of a super – whoever's calling the DeSantis optical shots is making big mistakes. But, you know, yes, the New York Times newsroom and the Post will, and political will work on that. Out there, he just signed up more state reps. He's selling tickets. So I, I see his candidate limitations, but I'm not willing to write anybody off right now. By the way, maybe we should say for the listeners that Jeff Rowe is kind of the it guy, guru, consultant, Carl Rove of the moment, uh, seen as, you know, super brain who, who worked for – Governor of Virginia, who you know helped him win that race and was thought to be running, and then when he kind of you know hesitated, jumped over to DeSantis. Right, and in the grassroots, there's a lot of love and hate for him, and I think Jeff is wisely trying to get invisible for a while, which would probably be a good uh, good PR move because in this business, a little too much attention <laughs> can go a long way. But he is he is the guy, and the other not to get into criminology, we got Texas to talk about, but the other big general in the DeSantis super PAC left 
yeah. uh, Phil Cox this week, who'd been there a while. So who, who knows what's going on inside the DeSantis world? I'll just bet the First Lady is the most powerful creature there. That is confirmed. Let me ask both of you a question, because it, I think I, at least I know my answer, but I'm fascinated to hear yours. Doesn't every candidate in the Republican primary, maybe except Chris Christie, because he's going to do the McCain, New Hampshire strategy, does everybody descend on Iowa and spend an absolutely just a ton of time there? Because it seems to me if Trump gets out of Iowa first, it is much, much harder to catch him. Yeah. If the race gets scrambled, if there's you know polling that shows him stronger in Iowa than he's been in quite some time, an Emerson poll last week, I'm waiting desperately to see some Des Moines polling, uh, Des Moines register polling. But if you're if you were running one of these races, wouldn't you do what I mean, we did this essentially in 2007, 2008. We realized I'm not going to win anything if we don't show that we can win in Iowa. We spent 75 days there. Don't you just go camp out and say, I'm going to I'm going to croak Trump here. Yeah. Yeah. I, again, I think it's all about does Trump lose Iowa and New Hampshire? Then he bleeds to death. And I think the field will close really quick. The high dollar world will not tolerate a third place finish in Iowa anymore. I think you think you think third is potential for who Trump? I think third is a potential for Trump. And a bunch of Iowa hacks told me that they think the so. They, and I want to ask Mark about this. I think I, I look, I like uh, Tim Scott a lot. Uh, and I think he's got a real shot. What I worry about is Scott takes the President Huckabee, President Cruz, President Santorum pill, runs hard Christian in Iowa, hoping that crossover vote I spoke about isn't there, and beats Trump. But then that's kind of the end of it, because secular New Hampshire will gun you down, though maybe not for Trump. And then it gets confusing. We have two people who beat Trump in different places, and then it, it kind of becomes Trump's game. I thought watching uh, President Bush in 2000 from our, you know, jungle hideouts in New Hampshire, I still thought the way he handled the Iowa caucus was brilliant because he did Christian plus. He was evangelical friendly because uh, he understood it. And in his own life, he had a, a story to tell. But most of the campaign was reaching beyond that. And I think if I were the Scott people, I would would study it, and and you were there. But I think that's the real formula to beat Trump, that coalition, and to go win New Hampshire. Well, I, no question about that. But I think that I think that Scott or anybody else would take a win under whatever conditions they can. And yeah. I mean, it's just uh, a natural route for Scott to go. And and a lot of people are going to be doing plus. But I think that that Scott has a, has a real takes to make and a real appeal for those evangelicals, which, which gives him the job. I think he can combine it, though, as long as he doesn't campaign in one lane. I well, think he can combine it with that compassionate conservative kind of image. That, that's the plus that he can do uh, right. that, you know, that Cruz couldn't. Yeah, I, I worry about Burgum if he spends real money because he's not a Trumpy guy. He's kind of pragmatic, regular conservative muscling in there. And that's when the theory of too many candidates starts. So I'm very curious to see what... Burgum's announcement messaging is. Well, give us the 60 second on him. Well, you know, it, one, he's no idiot. Grew up on a farm, went to Stanford Business School, <laughs> and then he thought, about the governor hmm, of North Dakota. Here. The governor of North, two term governor of North Dakota. And then he said, well, why don't I mortgage the farm, take a quarter million bucks, you know, risk everything I got? The guy's a risk taker. And I'll start a software company to make boring accounting software that's indispensable. Cut to he sells it to Microsoft years later for a billion dollars, employs 2,000 people, kept it based in North Dakota. Then he's a pretty successful uh, investor in a lot of private equity. I think he had part of the big green egg, by the way, of all things. So got elected, beat the regular Republican in the primary that was expected, was not a raving Trump idiot, not a Trump attacker. He's very much a beyond Trump, pragmatic, feet on the ground, um, meat and potatoes Republican. He's about 63 or four. You know, we'll see. We'll see if he has that magic snap. But it's a good story, and he's a self-funder. He says, I don't like begging people for money. I, you know, I put my own chips in, so I'm on the line. Take me or leave me. So I, I smelled the opportunity of some tickets being sold for him. We're, we're seeing. And now, a word from our sponsors. Let me ask you both this. You've got some big, big names in the Republican side thus far. 
uh, some big names that we assume are going to get in. Do you think there's real estate for somebody that's essentially going to start at zero? I think there is a guy who's got a checkbook that doesn't start at zero. And, and it's just kind of the, the new guy, new story, kind of new. Yeah, enough of this already. I'm a governor. You know, why don't we? Why don't we do something about the spending? Why don't we do something? I mean, just somebody who can sing the old music and looks fresh in it. And he's folksy. The guy wears blue jeans to work. You know, yeah. And, and, and he doesn't look like a Paul. He, he he looks like the Marlboro man married. A, I mean, uh, had a, a a kid with a college professor. He's uh, anyway. We're see in in the movie he'd be you know Sam Elliott's younger, little less woods uh, a westerny brother, the nerdier one. You can sell him, McKinnon. I, I see you smiling on the Zoom here because we're both like, seeing the same thing. He's got an open road Stetson, I'm sure. Give us $10 million of that guy in Iowa. McKinnon's got a few extra hats. He can get them on. Mm-hmm. The one thing I think is going to be interesting, and you've seen this a little bit. We don't spend a lot of time on this, but it is interesting to watch, and you've already seen this. The super PAC and the campaign for DeSantis are, are I think, on the threshold of making a decision about whether they go full frontal confrontation early, which I know was not their strategy four months ago. Um, But it has been interesting to watch DeSantis hit Trump from the right on COVID and Fauci and the First Steps Act, which was six weeks. uh, Yeah. The the abortion stuff. Uh, It's an interesting strategy. It at least seems to me uh, I give him, I, I don't know that that's a winning strategy. I, I give him some credit for understanding that continuing to hug the front runner is not a strategy to create a difference between. Yeah, di- dime store Trump runner. is not the way. I, I think I, they figured that out. And I think they know they got a swing, and I think that they're going to swing on the right. And I listen, I've seen some anecdotal. Uh, evidence that that's working, that there are, you know, papers out there who say Trump's just not pure enough and maybe the same as him. Yeah, I think they get the fundamental problem. There's a problem with Trump. They got to find their way to fill the vacuum. All right. Well, speaking of the race, before we dig in more, we got to talk about the Twitter, what do we call it? The Twitter fiasco of the announcement, which was one of these dumb staff slash candidate formulas. I hate the media. I don't need the media. I need super PAC donors. Elon Musk is a super PAC donor. I get it. I'll suck up to him by doing it on Twitter and screw that alert elite media. Just the way McCain taught him a lesson with Palin. Yes, sir, they all said. And then all of a sudden, Elon, who'd laid off half of his engineers or more, found out the gadget didn't work. What do we think? Is it a one-day thing, or is it a sign of a Keystone Cop potential campaign? No, I was gonna say let's ask McKinnon. McKinnon is the he's the he's the guy behind the camera. I mean, you I got to think much like we did. Both of you, you spent a lot of time thinking about an announcement. You know, that's where I'm going. Murphy talked about how important that it made. Sorry, there's three times during uh, an election for president where you have an opportunity to really move the dial of public opinion, the debates critical. Uh, if you're the nominee, the convention, your convention speech mm-hmm. and the choice of your VP and the announcement and your announcement. And and that's arguably the most important day because that's the day you have a complete free pass. Uh, I mean, basically the press says, okay, this is your day. Uh, you get, you know, tell us why you run it. And hopefully you've spent a little bit of time thinking about that and, and importantly, how you're going to do that. And Murphy, I'm sure you with McCain and me with Bush and gives you with the bar. I mean, you spent a lot of time thinking about that uh, because you know that that how many eyeballs you've got and you don't want to screw it up. So you leave like nothing to chance, right? Totally. Control freak the whole way. Yes. yes. And, and and so at the very least, it is I, one of it is a wasted best opportunity for him to to make a great first impression, yeah. you know, and he's yeah. not going to have another chance to make a good first impression. And Given the liabilities that he had about, you know, A, being a a complete dick to the general media anyway and sort of closing them out and saying, I'm a, you know, I know tech, watch me do tech. And, you know, it just, it it failed on almost every. And by the way, for a guy you want to humanize, we're going to do it with radio on Twitter. 
That way they don't see me. They do, I'm just calling from my weird swamp cave here where I'm gnawing on a, a, you know, a lamb. I mean, it was like the worst thing. In fairness, they couldn't get public access TV or AM radio. So, I mean, what is a guy left to do but go to Twitter spaces? I mean, duh. Yeah, yeah. well, he's doing the follow-up on shortwave. I, I actually tweeted a thing about there being the, the no-back-down pack. They've got a whole plan. Day two, tour Nashua in a Segway. You know, and then they're going to be on what yeah. space? For I mean, it, it just was so such a symbol. I totally agree with you, McKinnon. I mean, this is something you obsess about. It is th- their symbolism, their pictures. This is something that you know you're gonna you're gonna capture video of. You're gonna use this. This is your reason for being essentially a candidate. Uh, I, I think in eighteen months, this will either be something that is laughed about. Uh, because he was largely successful in this endeavor or a metaphor for everything that comes after, right? This is going to be yeah. like, gosh, this guy wasn't ready for prime time. They didn't take this seriously. A, a whole host of things. It'll be totally the lead on every look back. But, yeah, but look, totally. I, I will be contrarian. Despite the train wreck, early train wrecks can melt away. He's still got culture yeah. war. He's younger than Trump and he's got 70 million head in Iowa. He's not over yet. Oh, no, no. He's got a long way to go, despite what you uh, read in the, the newspapers or with National Polls. Just made it harder for himself. So. Right, right. He, he The opportunity cost is huge. Opportunity cost, yes. All these campaigns, they're, they're getting their Dakota rings together and their secret badges, and they're calling up the media about how smart they are. If I were running one of them, I'd say, we're doing debate prep four days a week from now to August. Because that first debate, if somebody's the Mayor Pete, and yeah. our class is the others, yeah. they're going to be on rocket fuel. And most of these guys, like all candidates, will think, no, the routine I did at the Orlando Chamber of Commerce or the Charlottesville Chamber of Commerce will be enough, or I'm Tim Scott, people love me, I've never had a fastball thrown at my head. And they just show up doing their regular act, it'll be Trump night, or it'll be Christie versus Trump night. So nothing is more important than breaking through in that debate for these Watch guys. Watch out for Swami. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, and the quality guru from Michigan. That We ought to have that guy on. Uh, I can't, I'm blanking on his name. He's driving around in a Winnebago and spending money. He's another guy with some money who's, oh, what was his name? He couldn't get his signatures right. But but he's hilarious. He's this kind of eighty year old guy who's uh, anyway. We're 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 going to get <laughs> a load of him. We digress. Too. And old plain spoken Bergam may show up with a lot of curiosity and all shucks it. While the yeah. other guys are you know anyway, whoever's ready to break through is going to do well. And that takes prep. Last exit question on this. Yes, sir. Is, and then we got to get to Tejas. All these guys jumping in. What does that say about DeSantis's strength? Well, same thing it says about Trump. They smell gold, blood weakness yeah the man who would be king i mean i, I think that's what's well, that's what the last three months of DeSantis, uh you know having some real uh issues just created an opening for everybody else to say okay it's not a race and out of fairness just quickly i'm not a fan but we should say the words nikki haley although yep. her q1 report showed only four million federal cash and we know the reality because of bills stuffed in the office drawer it's three five if she doesn't show some money she's not going to make it to uh, november Mark, we would be remiss uh, to not call on your voluminous Texas roots to tell us what in the world is happening where a decidedly Republican legislature uh, this weekend overwhelmingly impeached a decidedly Republican attorney general. Well, this is pretty spectacular uh, circus kind of stuff down in Texas right now. And it's also a note of hope for those prisoners of hope out there that maybe they're, you reach a point where maybe even your own team says, we need, we need an ounce of accountability here where you got a Nimrod like the Attorney General uh, Paxton, Ken Paxton, uh, a guy there in Texas who has somehow survived a couple of elections with all kinds of stink hanging over him since 2014. And and the list of particulars, we literally don't have time to go into here. It's the most ethically flawed uh, administration you can imagine where he's doing favors for a building guy and there's a mistress and there's a... No, it's incredible. Dreadnought class. I mean... Yeah. They, they get his wife elected to the Texas Senate, who's going to be a juror in his trial now. His wife... <laughs> But but the interesting thing, uh, the, uh, just cut to the chase and tell you the nub of it, which is that this guy was so unethical, so illegal, that seven members of his own staff left 
in, in some capacity because of their discomfort with executing the sorts of things that their boss was asking them to do. And then they finally uh, became whistleblowers saying, yeah. oh, the guy I used to work for is just breaking laws left and right, even though, and especially because he's the attorney general of Texas, and uh, we can't stand for this. And, and that case was settled for $3.3 million. Now, here's the interesting twist. <laughs> uh, this is kind of where the, you know, the Lance Armstrong thing, like he would have been fine if he didn't come back to race again. Uh, Paxton decided that rather than pay that, you know, fairly nominal fee considering the, the length of uh, abuses that went on, decided that he'd just pin that $3.3 million on taxpayers <laughs> and, and, and tried to get it in an appropriation bill. And that's when the Republicans in Texas in the legislature said, wait a minute, that's a bridge too far. And they set up an investigating committee and it was just a gold mine. They got in there and just discovered the most, again, we had taken an hour to go through the list of particulars, but in short order, uh, not just a majority, but more than two thirds of the Texas legislature, which are either Republican, most of them, or incredibly conservative. Right. It's not exactly the National Academy of Sciences in there. Exactly. And yeah. so they said, this guy's got to go. And now it's uh, they're they're going to put this thing to trial before August 28th of this year. So this thing's moving quickly. And it's going to be very interesting. By the way, Donald Trump even weighed in very typically to say, you know, Democrat, partisan media attack, and this is an attack <laughs> on me. I'm coming after you if you do this. And the Republicans there said, well, you know, sorry, dude. Uh, yeah. This guy's going down. And he may. Did Paxton use the old Jimmy Trafficking thing? I was conducting my own investigation, or he—he's so crazy. He's like defending it as he's the hero, right? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, this—it's just why. My question, really, for you, McKinnon, is—is is your prediction what happens? Because yeah, how does it he, end? He's—he's he's now suspended from being the attorney general. That was essentially, besides kicking this to the Senate to adjudicate the impeachment, he's—he's he's suspended from being the attorney general. Uh, What's your prediction on how this ends? Well, I asked, I, I made a call this morning uh, to, you know, my, my best sources down there this morning, not thinking that we might talk about this, and they think he's going to get convicted in the Senate. And wow. uh, it will be remarkable. And then what, is there a special election or an appointment? How do they resolve it? It's an elected position. I didn't go that far to get the real answers you needed. <laughs> oh, that, that's okay. We're, I'll, I'll call the New York Times and tell them to stand by for our next episode and we'll sort it out for them. But. I'm glad you did some reporting. I appreciate that. Yeah. We're opinion journalists here. We know the shoe leather. Ah, our feet hurt. Okay. The orchestra is getting restless, so let's hit the music. It's listener mailbag. If you have a mailbag question for the hack, send it to us for the magic of the interweb, that thing the kids are crazy about. All you got to do is email us at hacksontap at gmail.com, hacksontap at gmail.com, and we will check out your question. And if it was a great one we didn't get to, we have no memory here. So just re-email it a week or two later, and you may get on the air. Work it the Chicago way, multiple attempts. You had to get it in. I like that. Well, I try to do one every other episode. What? Um, nah, you do it every episode. That's good. McKinnon, I've got an interesting question for you. Um, it's from Christina. She writes, I am really scared about how AI is going to negatively influence the elections. If people believe the pizza parlor story about Hillary Clinton, then that was just text. Wait till they see it, albeit an AI creation. How do candidates and media sources protect themselves? How will consumers protect themselves, not just from the outrageous, but also even the subtle? Great question. Super question and super relevant, and it scares the hell out of me too. Uh, listen, AI is scaring the hell out of even people like Bill Gates and the people who are responsible for it. They're the ones who are saying, oh, can we slow this thing down, even though it's you know potentially making them a lot of money? So that's a real good indicator that something pretty scary is coming down the pike. You know, I think about the 16 election where, you know, we were teenagers from Macedonia were pumping in news stories into into our ecosystem, uh, made up stories, right? And and we didn't even realize till after the election that the extent to which that was happening. But people were reading these made up stories, assuming it was true. Uh, and now it's not going to be Macedonian teenagers. It's going to be artificial intelligence, you know, working to... Um, pushing artificial intelligence stories or, or manufactured with the help of artificial intelligence 
that will be much more convincing than anything we've seen so far. And just a little tiny taste of it, I saw this week where uh, DeSantis, I guess the super PAC probably, put out a, a, an AI-generated uh, video that was uh, basically uh, Joe Ron DeSantis uh, as the guy in the office talking about wearing lady clothes. And it was just a scene from the office, and they just supplanted uh, DeSantis's face very effectively into uh, the lead character's face of the office. So it appeared that it was Ron DeSantis. Now, most people get that joke and they realize that it was kind of a take on the office, but you just, I saw that, oh, Jesus. If this is just a, you know, a little taste of what's coming, we are in for big trouble. And so the big question I had coming out of 16, which is more relevant now than ever, is if we can't figure out the truth, then have the tools to determine what is the truth, we're in big trouble. Guys, what do you say? No, deep fakes scare the hell out of me because we're still biological animals. If I see a Bengal tiger in my living room table, I'm going to think, wow, that's a hologram, but I'll be running as fast as I can with a pulse rate of 140 because I'm just wired that way. So when we start doing fake videos, which the edge you spoke of is tickling on that boundary, it, it's going to be huge trouble. My guess is that we will find a story or two in the next six months that whip around the internet really quickly that we then find out an hour or so later isn't real is has been generated by something that AI created. Uh, and you know, look, I think it, the, the challenge that I think we have is the one Mark pointed out, which is at least half the electorate's been re-engineered to think a different series of things. Right. And we've got campaigns still playing along with it last week. Ron DeSantis, for whatever reason, decided he needed a flyover in a, in a video that he had. And so they added a flyover that didn't actually happen uh, into the ad. And so in some ways, you're gonna, it's going to be interesting to watch campaigns yell about this stuff, even though they're still kind of gaming the system a little bit as well. I just think the, the outcomes are somewhat limitless. I think we have no real idea how all of this will operate in normal life, let alone in the hyper-partisan playground of politics, I, I, it's going to be, I think we're in for a long two years as this goes. So just for fun, we asked AI about this. We went to good old chat GPT, which we know was already listening. And we said, how will AI hurt the next presidential election in the USA? Now, all of a sudden, my, uh, my appliances in my house are now spinning at a dangerous and potentially explosive uh, away. But what, what it answered was, is an AI language model. I can provide some insights into the potential impact of AI on the next presidential election in the USA based on current trends and possibilities. Note that future is uncertain. We better pay this thing off quick. It's open for business. So then it enumerated a couple of things. One, disinformation and fake news. AI systems can be used to generate what we talked about. Two, targeted micropropaganda. AI algorithms can, boy, it really knows how to do it. Three, Automated bot networks. AI can be used to create and deploy automated bot networks on social media platforms, amplifying certain narratives or hashtags and suppressing others for data privacy and security. They can do a lot with that. And biased decision-making. AI algorithms can independently perpetuate biases present in training data or program. I haven't heard of this one. If these biases go unchecked, they may influence decisions. And then there's a little disclaimer. It can also play a positive role in enhancing election security, blah, blah, blah. So AI has thought about this. <laughs> yeah. So so there you go. All right. Well, I'm going to call up the Swiss Council office here for my future move. If that's what AI came up with on their own in 30 seconds. Oh, one second. It was incredible. Blip. Today, yeah. imagine where it'll be six months from. It just added something too. I like McKinnon's hat. So uh, <laughs> this thing is everywhere. Yeah, it actually added another thing. It says you're all screwed. <laughs> I, I think this is going to be fascinating to watch. We were worried that sort of some level of social media had could and did have an impact on elections. This is going to be times 100. Buckle up, boys. I didn't read it all, but here's one sentence floating around in point three automated bot networks. That's a little chilling. These bots on social media can simulate human-like behavior, making it difficult to distinguish between genuine public opinion and artificially generated content. Content. 
content. So, <laughs> scary stuff. I'm going to get my HAL 9000 and try to work up a counter strategy. In the meantime, we're going to cut the mailbag here. We're trying to get to a few extra questions next week because we blew all our time talking about AI. But I'm glad we did. It's uh, going to be a huge, huge deal. Before we go, our book club. You can go to hacksontap.com slash book club. We've been recommending books from our fine guest. And Mr. McKinnon has a book for you. I do. This is a right on point for today. One of my favorite authors and people uh, in our culture is a guy named Larry Wright. Larry wrote uh, the Pulitzer winning book, The Looming Tower, and and many oh, yeah. uh, great uh, uh, articles and books. Uh, mainly writes for The New Yorker. Multi-talented. He's a multi-hyphenate. He's uh, got a great band out of Texas. Uh, uh, but he knows Texas uh, as well or better than anybody has written a lot about it, and he's got a great fictional novel uh, just coming out. Uh, you can pre-order it. It's called Mr. Texas. Oh. And when we look at what's happening right now with the Attorney General, uh, writes timing once again. He also wrote a book about the, book about the pandemic before the pandemic happened. Uh, so he's right on point once again about just the craziness of Texas. It's a fabulous read. He's one of the greatest writers uh we have in America today. Check it out, Mr. Texas. You can pre-order it now, I think, at Amplify. Oh, sounds fascinating. I'll pitch one quickly. Zev Yaroslawski, the behind-the-scenes city councilman and county supervisor, muscle man here in L.A. County, not so famous, had a massive impact for years. He has a memoir out. He's a listener, by the way. Hi, Zev. Zev's Los Angeles, from Boyle Heights to the Halls of Power. Get both of these recommendations and others that we've added at hacksontap.com slash book club. Mark McKinnon, thank you so much. Baron Von Gibbs, always a pleasure. Kick it hard. Carry on regardless. <laughs> Good to see you both. Next time, I'm, we're, we're getting hats, Murphy. We're doing it with McKinnon next time. Yeah, I refuse to participate again if you guys don't have hats. Good. I'll dig out my old Stetson Roadmaster here, which is upstairs somewhere. So I, I'm in. I'm in. Excellent. As always, fun to be with you both. Gibbs, we're going to get you the big Martin Short sombrero one from Three Amigos. I, I'm going to I'm make in. this my mission. All right, good. I'll wear the bullfighter suit, too. All right. Hatted Hacks on Tap. That's us. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back next week. <laughs>